Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's my delight to have David Abbott, who has possibly the best book title ever, and I'll let him introduce himself. But could you start with the name of your book? <laughs> How to Price Your Platypus. <laughs> and, uh, and it feels like I ought to have also just said, hello, everybody, and hello, Marcus. But yeah, How to Price Your Platypus. David is a, an expert in helping companies to price effectively. And uh, this is a problem that I see across the board, whether you're a startup, a scale-up, or an established business. And if you don't do it well, people leave money on the table. So, David, before we get into the meat and grist of this, could you give 90 seconds on your background? Sure. Uh, like a lot of people, I've had a bit of a varied background in uh, the corporate world. I've been responsible for uh, UK brands of businesses, billion-dollar global distribution companies, and uh, you know, I've run organizations the size of 400 people, 57 million turnover. But at the other end, complete startups where I'm the only person. Uh, we've got a prototype product, and the objective is to turn this into something that's actually saleable, then build a market and build a business. So I've done all of that, plus I've had a number of senior marketing roles in a wide variety of different industries. But then about 10 years ago, I decided to work for myself. So over the past 10 years, I've been doing one of two things. One is working with organizations about pricing or speaking about pricing. And the other is helping organizations with the strategic marketing. So that's typically working as their marketing director on a part-time basis and helping them to develop and execute a strategy and to build the marketing competence within the uh, the organization. So, a bit of variety there. Excellent. Well, I'm a big fan of people with a varied background working in a specialist area that requires creativity because they tend to generate much better results than people who just specialize in an area that requires creativity because they can draw on a wider range of experience and connect the dots that uh, mm-hmm. specialists can't. So, I'll probably dig into that as we go. You mentioned in the preamble to this that there are four common tactics or approaches that people can take, whatever their business, in terms of pricing. Would you mind leading off with those? Of course, yeah. It often doesn't matter what it is that they're trying to struggle with from a pricing point of view, but from a pricing communications point of view, the psychology of how we make a pricing decision, how the the customer makes a pricing decision, says, yeah, okay, I'm happy with that price. There are four techniques that tend to work quite well across a wide range of different businesses. And they're relativity, anchors, precision, and free. And they're probably the the most, when I work with an organization, they are probably the the most common things that they would try first. And that often lead to the uh, most success. So probably a good idea to work through each of them and tell you what what they have to ask. So you'd be (laughs) so relativity. Yeah, price relativity. It's a really simple thing, really. We're all humans. You know, we're not, uh, we're not computers. We, we've got this uh, wet matter between our ears. And when we're making a pricing decision, what we're mostly using is what psychologists call our system one brain, what you or I, a layman, would call our subconscious. And our system one brain is continuously making decisions all of the time without our system two brain being aware of it our conscious mind being aware of it. And when we encounter a price, behind the scenes, 
our subconscious, our system one thinking, has to try and figure out, is this a fair price for whatever has been presented to me? And one of the ways it does that is by comparing that price with any other price it's ever seen for something similar, for alternatives, for substitutes, for other things it could spend the money on, or all sorts of things. And this is all happening almost instantaneously without you being aware of it. So one of the simplest things is to give a customer more than one pricing option, a good, better, best, if you're able to. And then what they're doing is they're comparing the three prices in front of them rather than one price with well, a whole bunch of things that are completely outside your control. That's very interesting because, again, one of the things that we teach is that you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. Yeah. And you sound and look like everybody else. Then they will be positioning you in that category or in that price range. And it's really important, if you're, especially if you're selling something that's in a crowded, competitive, price-sensitive market, that you don't sound or look or feel like your competition salespeople. So that plays very neatly to that system one, system two. That's very interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah. And uh, my memories, they're old and uh, I have a cheesy brain. What, what was the second um, strategy? Pricing anchors. An anchor is a number that you've got in your head that represents the value for something. So the easiest example, the ones I quote most often, is uh, house prices. I live up in the north of England. I live in uh, West Yorkshire. If I go down to London and I look in an estate agent's window, my mind is just blown by the, the price of houses. I struggle to understand how anybody can afford a, a garage to live in, you know, never mind a house. I would imagine people from London come up north to Bradford, which is near to where I live, and look in an estate agent's window. They probably think that we're living in gated communities because we're giving away houses cheap as chips. But we've each got this anchor, you know, that says uh, the price of a house should be such and such. But the really interesting thing about anchors is that they can be completely arbitrary. They can be adjusted almost instantaneously. One of the simplest ways of doing that is the order in which you present your prices. So an example that I use is one that I I was speaking to a group of retailers at um, an exhibition once, and they were flooring retailers. And when you buy carpet, you've then usually got to choose an underlay. And you'll be presented with maybe four or five options. And because we, we count up and we write from left to right, you would see them presented in front of you, the $2.99 a square meter, and then the $4.99, $5.99, $7.99, $9.99. It would be arranged like that. You know, you'd start at the cheapest and go up. And uh, you know, I said to the audience, one of the simplest things you can do is just swap it around. Start with a $9.99. One of the guys in the audience came up at the end of it and said that he'd done exactly that a year ago. Before he swapped everything around, the most common underlay that he sold was the second one along which was $4.99. He swapped it round, and the most common underlay that he sold was still the second one along, but now it's $7.99. And you can imagine, you know, so somebody comes in when in the original sequence, you know, they, they're touching and feeling the, the minimum quality $2.99 underlay, and it's a bit naff, but they, they go along to the next one. Oh, gosh, that's, that's so much better. It's only two pounds a square meter more. Exactly the same thing happens when you encounter the higher number first, your anchor on that, and then you're comparing the next. You know, oh, it's a lovely underlay, but it's a bit pricey. But oh, this next one, it's almost as good, and we save two pounds a square meter. 
it's interesting. I think this would also play into primacy and recency. It does. Recent or the first thing. And mm-hmm. as you're going through touching the underlays, you remember the feel of the, the plus one. And then you make the compromise. Well, you know, I'm getting almost the same thing, but it's a couple of quid cheaper. Very interesting. Yeah. It's similar in some respects to the whole uh, issue about relativity. We're, we're not computers. We don't have the, you know, something digital inside our, our heads going on. We're, uh, we're very, very analog. We're very human. We use all of these heuristics, mental shortcuts, rules of thumb. And there are a couple of hundred of them, cognitive biases, to make very quick and dirty decisions that are right most of the time. And the simplest way is by comparison. So in the first example, price relativity, give them more than one price because then they've got more, you know, they're comparing your options rather than you versus somebody else. But in anchors, all you're doing is you're guiding the first thing that they're then going to compare everything else against, make it the highest price first rather than the lowest price. And it just drives that average price up. Excellent. So again, really simple tactic, but again, one that people will often make the mistake of because the mistake of not doing, largely because of a problem with their own money concept that they think yeah. people buy on price. People almost never do. In a real selling situation, what we found is that they never buy on price. Price is a way they use to justify their mm-hmm. decision. It's not a reason for making it. Paradox is there, though, that uh, you spend most of the time talking about price, which is a a mistake that I think a lot of salespeople make. They allow the buyer to just focus on may well be the least important factor, specification or reliability, or there could be a whole host of uh, different things that are really going to drive that sale, you know, that are more important. But the whole conversation revolves around price. The rule around objections is prospects never object unless the salesperson takes them there. Mm. If a prospect is objecting about price, it's your fault. You have said or done something or failed or, or failed to do something or say something. And as a result, you've created the conditions for the objection to come up. If you're smart, first of all, look at your own behavior. And if it happens repeatedly, if it happens once, it's a coincidence. If it happens twice, it's a pattern. Three times in quick succession, it's definitely your fault. So pay attention to how you say things, when you say things, what you say, and make sure that if you see a pattern of these pricing objections coming up, you analyze what you said or did that caused them to happen and then modify your behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Really interesting, isn't it? I actually I was chatting about pricing with, uh, with a friend who is a negotiation expert, and he quoted a statistic. Uh, I've not tracked this down, but uh, my recollection is that he said something like 80% of businesses lose customers for non-price reasons. So you've got a relationship going with somebody. They decide to go elsewhere, and 80% of the time, it's not because somebody else was cheaper. It's because in some way you've let them down, it's been a service issue or somebody else has a better solution or whatever it might be. If that's the case, you know, then price is one of the, the least important things in okay. terms of making that final decision. And more often than not, actually, it's inattention. They don't feel valued anymore. It's a poor communication, lack of touch points, infrequency of contact. If all you do is a drive-by shooting every year for a renewal, then you haven't established that trust. You haven't built 
the relationship. It's interesting. I interviewed a couple of really very successful negotiators, so Todd Camp and Alan Sang, and mm-hmm. both of them said that you didn't, you don't need to compromise when you're negotiating. Them really don't need to compromise, and they cited numerous examples. They've been able to plant their feet, but it normally comes down to mindset and preparation. If you understand and you've prepared and worked through the kind of things that buyers are likely to do, then you can probably preempt them. And they cited four reasons why people say no. First one is they don't have an emotional attachment to the outcome that they intend to receive. Second is that they don't have enough evidence to be comfortable to make that decision. The third, and this is a very frequent thing with a lot of salespeople because they call it their level of comfort rather than where they need to be, is you're talking to the wrong people. And the fourth, and this is very common, particularly with professional buyers, they're bluffing. They're professional flinches. Mm. And what they do is whatever price you give. (laughs) And what's really interesting is they came up with a wonderful strategy, particularly in RFPs. And a lot of this is done over email. And they said, and the first thing you do is you respond on the email. Uh, When the procurement says, look, would uh, like to consider you, but uh, we have two other suppliers in the frame and they're 30 points cheaper than you. So unless you come back with a sharper pencil to your offer, then we're going to have to reject your offer. And so the first response is, thank you for letting us know. Would you mind explaining why, given the massive difference between our price and our competitors, why we're still even being considered? So you come back with the response mm. there. Um, and then your next response is, thank you for your clarification. Do we take this, that that is formal notification that you are excluding us from this bid? Now, if you've done a good enough job and you've got the right kind of executive sponsorship, procurement gets it in the neck at that point. Because if they want to buy from you and it's just a tactic and it's a bluff, then procurement gets kicked to touch. And I've done this loads of times with my clients. In fact, I only had an example this week where a large bank desperately needs a particular product that my client has. And it's not like they have deep, empty pockets. They've got very short arms. And they tried to stiff them on a 40% discount. So we rehearsed the conversation. And within seconds, the guy capitulated has agreed to go ahead. And instead of six months, it's a year. And uh, instead of 40% discount, full price. Mm -hmm. There was no need, but it was instigated by procurement. And procurement gets paid, just in case anyone is in any doubt, procurement gets paid on the amount they stiff suppliers. Totally, yeah. It's their uh, PPV, uh, uh, positive price variance, uh, or purchase price variance. Whatever it stands for, what it amounts to is the more they can knock off some standard price, the bigger their bonus. Absolutely. They are not your friend. Just no. be aware. Okay. No. Um, and so the third, third item, yeah, price uh, precision or arbitrary precision. There are a few things around this. One is, again, this is about how we're human and why we're not with calculators. When our system one thinking is presented with a number, it's got to try and figure out the magnitude of that number. Just how big is it? And when it's presented with a precise number, precise numbers feel smaller than they really are. So if you're presented with 325,425, that feels smaller to your system one brain than 325,000 does. 
325,425 is obviously 425 bigger. But in isolation, when people are tested with those numbers, the more precise number just feels smaller. Precise numbers weirdly feel smaller than they really are. Precision communicates something. If you were to imagine that uh, you're a web developer and, and I've come to you with a brief, I want you to develop a website for me, and you say, yeah, sure, I can do that for £5,000. Well, that just sounds like you've stuck a finger in the air and come up with a number. If you can make up a number, so can I. I'll make up 3000 Yeah, let's have a chat. If you'd said it's 5180 or it's uh, 5320 or whatever it might, the number might be, because there's some precision there, it sounds like there's a reason for it. There's some science behind it. And there are some of the subtle things that then go on. If you just quote 5,000, then you're indicating that when we get into the negotiation, we're going to negotiate in thousands or 500s. If you say that it's 5,180, there's a subtle, unconscious indication that we're going to negotiate in tens and hundreds. That was worth the price of admission. Yeah, just that. But it gets even more clever because often you'll still get asked, oh, you, you did it earlier when you get a, I do believe they practice that in the morning before they leave the, the house. <laughs> times before you get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. So the buyer will go, yeah, that's, that's still a bit expensive. Can you sharpen your pencil? And so many people will say, oh, yeah, okay, I can knock 10% off. Well, if you can knock 10, why isn't it 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? You've clearly just plucked a number out of thin air. But if you get your pen and paper out and you, you know, make a couple of notes and have a think to yourself and then say, I could knock 3.9% off. If you just say 10, again, you're indicating any negotiation over discounts is now going to go up in fives and tens. If you say 3.9, you're indicating that any negotiation is going to go in point ones and ones. And it just gives you that little psychological advantage. The evidence is the uh, 27 house sales were analysed and the more precise the initial asking price, the closer the final price. In Harvard Business Review, mergers and acquisitions, so companies going onto the market for sale, the more precise the initial asking price for that company, the closer the final price was that was paid for it. Interesting. Really, really simple. Really? Oh, wow. Fascinating. Okay. I've spoken to uh, business audiences now and I've uh, chatted to the people about what they're going to do differently afterwards. And several have said, well, they're going to stop rounding it. They're already calculating things precisely. And then they sit down and round the damn thing. <laughs> and all they have to do to improve their pricing one day later is stop rounding it. <laughs> well, let me make a caveat to what David has said. The first rule is no unilateral concessions. So do not give anything away unless you get something of equal or greater value back in return. The second rule is the first thing you say is no three times and bite your teeth until your gums bleed. After that, if they're still pressing you, then have them make the first concession. It's really important that you push the pressure back on them because buyers are very adept at it. And you've all done it to your uh, to people when you're buying. If you're a bit of a haggler, well, you know, and you start to turn away and walk away. The reality is, more often than not, it's a bluff. One thing that I do want to emphasize, I am not a negotiation expert. 
what these different pricing techniques do is they help you to go into the negotiation in a better position than you were before just from the starting point. Because I completely agree with everything that you've just said about the art of negotiation, you know, saying no uh, multiple times and or, or not giving things away without getting a concession in, the, in return. Completely agree. But these will help you in terms of your starting point. And the better your starting point, the better your ending point. Absolutely. And these are brilliant because what it does is it gives you a slight edge. What I've learned over the last 35 years is it's all about slight edge. You mm-hmm. start out with a great big steel bar and a whetstone and you're still paring away at it. Eventually, you end up with a razor blade. In the sales process, it's really important that you are contracting constantly. Do not have a buyer make one big decision at the end. Make sure that you are creating dozens and dozens and dozens of little agreements along the way. So the only decision they have to make at the end is, well, what would you like to do next? And it's either go ahead or end it. Where a lot of people go wrong is they wait till the end for the decision. Put the decision at the beginning. Agree up front what's going to happen at the end. And make sure that both sides know exactly why they're there and what the intended outcome is, the mutually agreed intended outcome. And that way, you almost never end up in a negotiation. I can't wait for the fourth one. (laughs) Fourth one is, from a pricing guy, you might think this is a bit strange, but using free or zero. Before I say anything else about this, I will straight away say, I am not talking about giving away your core product or service for free. But given what we've been saying about uh, a lot of the, the unconscious way that our mind is working is it's, it's making these comparisons when some element or elements of what you're providing are free, that interrupts, the, that stops the easy comparison that your subconscious mind is trying to make. So what I mean by this is, Most organizations that I've worked with already give a whole bunch of things away for free, and they've stopped talking about it. So it might be an engineering company that does a particular thing, that as part of their service, they do a free survey uh, prior to the work. They provide free technical sheets on something. There's a free 24-hour hotline. There's a free something else, free something else, free something else. And they've, they've just stopped even mentioning them. It's just become the norm. So one of the things that you can do is you can sit down and go through whatever it is that you do. And this works particularly well in B2B, but it happens in B2C too. But you go through and have a look at every single thing that you do and let's make it clear to your customer that here's the offer and here's the price, but included with that, you get free this, free this, free this, free this, free the other. Is the recommended price of those with the free offer as well? No. Never, ever do that because what happens then is you'll, you'll get into a negotiation where they say, oh, well, we could do without that. So you can, and I see that's worth £25. You can therefore knock £25 off, can't you? Instantly, that's what will start to happen. They'll, you know, as the Americans call it, nickel and dime you around all those options. What you do is you can hold some of them back because it, it may be that you've just started to do all of these things, but some of them, some of them are less appreciated than others, but you can hold them back to offer them in as one of the concessions as part of the negotiation. But you can also, when you're really thinking through your value proposition, why is it that everybody's buying from you? If you can identify things that are a low cost to you, 
but a high perceived value to the customer, then they're great things to either just include for free in order to break that comparison, that easy comparison between you and the competition in the first place, or that you you hold because you can chuck that in as part of the negotiation. Or even, you know, it, it may be, it may be if you're trying to find three different prices, a good, better, best, if you can identify something that's a low cost but a high value, that's one of the ways that you go from good to a better option. I mean, this is fascinating. So to, just to summarize, we've got use your buyer's unconscious mind to your advantage through relativity, through anchors, through arbitrary precision, and through free or zero. So what are the things that people should be thinking about when they're trying to put their pricing together, but they don't? <laughs> I think one of the real surprising ones is, should I increase my prices? Well, that's I, how talking. I am constantly amazed when I speak in front of a business audience, then we do a poll at the beginning, and we ask people, uh, when was the last time you increased your prices? The proportion of companies that will scratch their head and, th- and say, well, it might have been about five years ago. I'm not sure. Maybe it was seven. I, no, no, it was when Fred, Fred was here. He was the last one that did. Flipping heck, he left 10 years ago. And that kind of thing goes on. So I think one of the first things that companies should, uh, they should ask me to help them or should ask themselves is, when was the last time I increased my prices? Is it time to do it again? Even better is great if you do it regularly. And there are companies that say, no, we do it first of January every single year, price goes up. And one of the other nice things about precise prices, precision is, if your price is £100 for something and you decide that you know, inflation, 3%, you've got, it's got to add 3% or something, going from 100 to 103 is very obvious. It's a bit of a slap in the face to the uh, customer. Going from 117, add 3% to whatever that is, is a lot less obvious in terms of a uh, price rise. So some companies do do it regularly. I come across the occasional company who has an even better way of doing it, which is if you're in the business where you regularly bid for whatever the opportunity might be to provide a product or a service, but it's a fairly regular thing, I've seen one or two businesses that measure their win-loss ratio and they aim for a certain percentage of losses, let's say 65%. And if they ever start to creep up to about 70%, then they increase their prices. So when they look back, on average, their price increases are around about every six to nine months. But they increase them every time they start to win too many pieces of business because that's an indication that there's an opportunity there to push the price up a little bit again. Very interesting. Well, I have a couple of schedules that work really nicely. And if anyone wants them, one is about discounting your prices and the other one is the impact of raising your prices. Mm. Now, if you are working on an average margin of 30% and you discount your pricing by 10%, in order to stay in the same place with your gross profits, you have to sell 50% more the next time. Now, this is where people really make some fundamental errors because not only do you have to do that, but that's the, the anchor that you have set the customer at. And for all business going forward, you're then going to have to pay that price. And that means that your sales force and your marketing has to work all that much harder in order to make up the difference. 
Sorry, you were going to say something. No, I agree. Uh, and I use the same kind of example, but I think uh, even, even more important than gross margin is net margin. And if your net margin is 10% and you give a 10% discount, good luck you know, figuring out how many more you've got to sell in order to, uh, to break even. You're really going to have to work hard to make even the halfpenny. Now, if your volumes go up, there is a difference between fixed and variable costs. And, and if you're selling many more and your fixed costs don't change, and you've only got to worry about your variable costs, you might still be making a positive net margin. So each company has got to figure it out. But I think companies are blasé about discounting. I'm not against discounting, but if you're going to do it, run the numbers. You've got to be absolutely clear what break-even looks like. And I think most organizations, they'll discount like that. They get into the habit of discounting. In fact, I was doing some mystery shopping. This goes back a few years, but I was doing some mystery shopping in one company that I worked in. And I, I included some of the sister brands within this group. And when I, one of those particular sister brands, you'd either walk through the door into the, the sales rooms or ring them up over the phone. And they just offer you a discount automatically. You might want to buy a hammer. Let's say it's a hammer. Buy a hammer, and you're prepared to pay the £3.50 that it says on the, uh, the, the ticket. But you walk up to the counter and they say, I'll give you 10% off that. The programs that I think propagate this are those awful antique shows. They go in and then they say, oh, is that your best price? Oh, well, I can give you. And it's just crazy. So again, to build on what we've been talking about, so the same example, you're making 30% gross margin. If you increase your prices by 10%, yeah. you're to lose 25% of your business. Yeah. Yeah? We're um, going to come on to the, this later because I've been thinking about the typical questions that you ask, but uh, I want to touch on this again because well, you're absolutely right. Again, there is a huge commercial argument for being the high-priced provider. Mm -hmm. And it's this, if you have to sell 60 units a month in order to hit your revenue and profitability targets to sustain your business, or you have to sell seven, when you have to only sell seven, you can love your customers to death. And being the cheap provider means that you are probably going to spend an awful lot of time starting afresh every month trying to replace customers who have churned because your price. Well, price is the only thing that they worry about, yeah. You're Absolutely. chasing the wrong kind of customer. A high price communicates something about what you're going to receive. From a consumer point of view, it's um, our brain is very clever, and there's a huge amount of research that when you look at parts of the brain that are associated with pleasure, things like the medial orbitofrontal cortex, which is around here, when you look at things like that and then give people different priced options – even when the psychologist is telling a fib and really they're, they're experiencing three identical things, if they think that one is more expensive than the others, they genuinely seem to enjoy it more. And they're not being shallow and trying, hey, you know, I'm a BMW driver, I wouldn't drive a cheap car or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's my status. It's not that. They genuinely enjoy it more. In the business context, it's about risk. You know, there was the old saying, you know, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. And I remember in the early days of IBM PCs being in an organization where we were choosing between an IBM PC and an Olivetti PC. The Olivetti was cheaper and faster. We bought the IBM because it was safe. 
Because even if it went wrong, nobody's job was at risk because you wouldn't get the blame. Absolutely. Well, no one ever got promoted for buying IBM in my experience either. <laughs> this is really, really fascinating. And what, what I'm clearly getting a picture of here is that this is really about understanding psychology and neuroscience as more than totally right. I was interviewing a friend of mine, Pierre Van Vaperet, and he comes from the pharmaceutical industry. And a psychologist friend of his asked him to send along his top five salespeople and his bottom five salespeople. And he ran sales calls whilst they were in an fMRI scanner. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was looking at which bits of the brain lit up. And we didn't go into detail, but he said that the difference between the top performers and the bottom performers was entirely visible and completely marked in terms of which bits of the brain lit up when they were doing their talk tracks or when they were dealing with objections or when they were pushing back and getting into pricing conversations. And what's really interesting is I don't think enough salespeople really take enough time to think about the psychology of buying and selling. So at the end, I'm going to ask you about some great books and influences. I'd I'd love it if you could maybe point people towards. I I certainly will. You're absolutely right. This is all about psychology. My book, which we'll uh, we'll talk about again, I'm sure, but How to Price Your Platypus, it's a combination of really two things. It's my experience as a marketer, but it's also the psychological research that backs up you know, how we make decisions, and in particular, pricing decisions. There's a lot of papers that I've, I've downloaded and read in order to, to understand what the point behind that particular piece of research is and how it might apply in a commercial context. You know. But the point that you're just making there about the top five and the, the bottom five salespeople reminds me of a good book that people ought to read. Richard Wiseman uh, wrote a book. I think it was just called Luck or The Luck Factor, something like that. But the luck is in the title. He set out to find out, are there such things as lucky people? And the answer was, yes, there are some people who are luckier than other people. And it's not because of any mysticism or because the stars align or anything like that. It's about a prepared mindset, being open to opportunities, not just being focused on the task and I'm just get this done, but looking at everything that's happening around you. And I bet the key difference between those top five and those bottom five salespeople that you just mentioned, those top five, they're aware of all of those, that, that small thing that might happen over here and they're thinking, oh, right, okay, that's going to help me do such and such or whatever it might be. They're receptive. The book is called The Luck Factor by Richard. The Luck Factor, right. And what I think you're pointing to there is their radar is on, so they're aware. And one of the rules that we teach is inspect what you expect. If you, when you're picking up the phone to speak to a prospect, you're expecting them to give you grief, they'll give you grief. If you're expecting them to respond positively towards you, they'll respond positively towards you because you get reflected back what you project out. And again, your mindset is absolutely the key. Your five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. And it's not the other companies out in your marketplace. And often fear that the six inches between your ears is the single biggest defining factor as to whether you succeed or fail in sales. This has been really fascinating. Just a quick anecdote about the look factor and uh, Richard Wiseman. I love all of this about what makes us tick and uh, the psychology behind 
what makes us human. But one of the experiments that they did was they, uh, they got uh, people who classed themselves as lucky and people who classed themselves as unlucky. They got them all to do a test. They were reading through a newspaper, counting something. And I can't remember what they were counting. It was either uh, every time they saw a certain word in a headline or it was every time they saw a person in an advert, whatever. But they were counting something. And about three pages in, there was a great big advert that said, if you read this advert, you can stop now. Just tell the, um, the researcher that you've reached this, this point. And the lucky people spotted that, closed the paper and went and said, hey, yeah, I've just done such and such. And the yeah, unlucky people just had this narrow blinkered focus, went all the way through and counted whatever they were meant to, uh, to count. So Richard Wiseman, he got on telly about this. And I saw the um, being interviewed. And the interviewer is really interested. Say, oh, yeah, so the difference is the, the lucky people, you know, they spot things. And Richard Wiseman is, uh, is, is looking at the interviewer and walking along the corridor and then stops and leans against the wall with a great big poster on it that says something relevant to the, uh, the, the interviewer and just stands there and chats to the interviewer for another five minutes or whatever before the interviewer himself suddenly sp- oh <laughs> and sees the, uh, the item. <laughs> One of my favourite sales tactics, it's a, it's a bit gamey, but it is hilarious, is I write on a piece of paper. When someone's pushing back about our approach, I write on a piece of paper in big red letters, I am doing it to you now. And I hold it up. And then we have a conversation. It's there. And after a while, it becomes invisible to them. And they say, oh, never work. And three or four minutes later, they're bored. And then I just rattle the paper. This stuff doesn't work. So again, we do have this blindness. Uh, If you haven't read it yet, there is a fabulous book by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Thinking Fast. And introduces this whole concept that David talked about, which are heuristics. And the other one is Daniel Ariely. His work is really fascinating as well. Predictably Irrational, are you thinking? Absolutely. Predictably Irrational. Wonderful book. Two of my favourite books, Thinking Fast and Slow and Predictably Irrational. They are really, really good reads. Yeah, Absolutely. Brilliant. So what are the other things people should think about before they go into a pricing conversation, but they don't? I, there's a really interesting one, and I think that you, this is something that you'll relate to strongly, and it's the, the question. I don't think that many companies ask this question of themselves, what am I selling? And I don't mean I'm selling this widget or I'm selling this service or I'm in the experience market or the something market. Companies can sell one of three things. They either sell inputs, outputs, or outcomes. So for example, let's use a law practice as as an example, because you can get your head around it fairly easily. If the way that you price your work is by the hour, now you you might be a 500 pounds an hour lawyer versus somebody else who's a 200 pounds an hour lawyer, but if basically all you do is you price your work by the hour, and if it takes five hours to do something, that's what you charge, you're selling your inputs. You're selling time. Yep. Your time might be more expensive than somebody else's time, but you're still selling your time. It's a mugs game selling time. And if you're a manufacturer, this is a cost plus pricing. So you add up the cost of all the raw materials, the labor on the line, the rent on the, uh, the building, utilities, uh, admin. You add all of those costs up, add a margin on top, that's the price. 
And you can tell that you're selling your inputs because if your costs go down, your prices go down. If your costs go up, your prices go up. But all you're selling is your labor, your inputs, your time, whatever it is. Outputs is where you're basically matching what the market says a price for something should be. So again, law firm, let's say conveyancing. If all conveyancing is £600, then basically you're saying, okay, here's this thing, a conveyanced house, a bought or sold house. We'll do that for you. It's £600. doesn't matter how long it takes. doesn't matter how good a job we do or a bad job we do. Whatever it is, £600. And in almost every business, if all you do is match what the average is out in the marketplace, what the competition is doing, you're just selling an output. What I'm really interested in is persuading companies to think about selling the outcomes, the value that they create, because that's where you've then got the opportunity to genuinely explore a higher price for whatever it might be and to start to think about how you differentiate yourself out in the uh, the marketplace. And it's a mindset. You've tapped into something that I'm zealous about, which is what you think you sell. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and bought a computer, a CRM system, legal services. They're buying outcome, and they buy for their reasons, not your reasons. So I'll give you a couple of the irrational reasons that people have bought my training. Their horse went lame, and they needed £80,000 in order to pay for the vet's bill. And they loved the horse. So they paid me, I don't know, whatever it was back then, twenty grand in order to earn enough to pay for Jacob to be able to jump around the fields. And to this day, he's still bouncing around fields. Two people have come to me because they wanted to pay for IVF treatment. Several people have come to me because they wanted to pay for school fees. I had one person who wanted to buy the flat next door in Docklands because she ran out of space for her modern art collection in her flat. And she wanted to knock a wall through so that she would double the wall space so she could continue enjoying her modern art. I had a client who sold an entrenched, embedded, incumbent competitor, and the reason the IT director bought his product was he didn't have that particular company's software on his CV. So two years from then, he wanted to move company and move job, and he wanted to have their logo on his CV So he could say he'd done an implementation and he spent 3 million euros in order to improve his CV. Stop thinking that anyone cares about your ugly baby. Stop showing photos of it. Don't talk about it. The minute you start talking about your company, your products, your services, you, you've lost the sale. And you're raising costs in their mind increasing the number of objections you're going to get and reducing the probability of closing and lengthening the cost and uh, length of your sales cycle. It's just crazy. And people do not buy using reason and logic. People buy emotionally and they justify intellectually. And the most powerful thing you can do is learn how to put them in a story. And We are creatures of story. We've been sat around campfires thinking about the great emu in the sky for the last 250,000 years. And if you make yourself the hero of that story, you're in trouble. You have to make the customer the hero. You're the guide. So you are Obi-Wan to their Luke Skywalker. 
And this is something that happens all the time. People make themselves Luke Skywalker. They come in and they say, we're the hero. We've got these shiny widgets. And that all that does is it creates resistance that is totally avoidable. I suspect the same thing comes to pricing. You were saying earlier on, you know, people derive more pleasure out of drinking the same wine out of a different labeled bottle. Yeah. Um, another experiment. And different parts of their brain kick off and, so tell me about how to price your platypus. First of all, how did you come up with such a fabulous name? It wasn't easy. To start off with, I, I describing what I do as the, the psychology of pricing, which does what it says on the tin, but it's not very memorable. And um, I, I was just bouncing a few ideas around over time with, uh, with people, and, uh, and it just came out of nowhere, how to price your platypus. But, but it has a a use, a utility in a number of aspects. One is there's, there's a kind of a, there's a story behind it in a way, which is if I were to give you a real life two-year-old male platypus and ask you to sell it for the highest price you can get, where would you start? It's an intrinsically difficult thing to sell. There's no market in them. You can't Google it. It would take a little bit of work and effort to try and figure out what's the appropriate price to try and get for this live male platypus. So the platypus is a bit of a metaphor for those pricing challenges that we face inside businesses. It's also, the other utility is, it's memorable. And I've spoken to audiences, and then two years later, somebody's been on the phone to me saying, you know, I remembered you from a couple of years ago. So, so I Google price and platypus, and I found you. It is memorable, and people hopefully can uh, track me down there when they need me. So uh, that's how we ended up with that one. A fabulous book title. I love it. David, so tell me, what are you reading, watching, listening to? And if you can share some books around biocellular psychology, that would be wonderful. Well, you've mentioned probably my all-time favorite, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is an incredibly easy read. And on almost every page, you're going, wow, you know, we do, is that how we act? You know, so... That's a really good one. And um, Kahneman and Amos Tversky, they, the foundational work that they did in psychology was just groundbreaking. But that Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for it, so Amos Tversky would have got one as well had he been alive. But their work led well, on not, to... Not only that, they got the Nobel Prize for economics. As yeah, psychology. absolutely, not psychology, yeah. Absolutely. They created the whole discipline of behavioural economics. Yeah, and their work led on to behavioral economics, and Thaler got a Nobel Prize, I believe, for his work in that, and he wrote Nudge. And that's a really good book to read as well. And that that led to the Nudge unit inside uh, number 10 in Downing Street. So there's a couple that I would strongly recommend. The one that I'm just starting right now is uh, this one, The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton, which again is about what makes us tick? It's about these cognitive biases that we use to make these quick and dirty decisions. So I'm looking forward to seeing if there's uh, anything new inside that. So you've got a golden ticket and you can go and whisper in the ear of the idiot David, age 23, who knew everything, was immortal, invincible. What choice bit of advice would you give him? <laughs> you warned me about this, like. I started to think about it, and I, I could write pages of things that I was showing <laughs> I was 23. It's narrowing it down. Well, you can have two or three. So I, think, 
<laughs> I think from a, um, a personal point of view, I, I, I was make more time for the fun stuff. It is very easy to get sucked into the daily grind. Oh, God, I've got another deadline. I need to do that. And you, you've got to remember there, there needs to be a balance in life or else what's the point? But the other thing from a business point of view, I'm, I, I thoroughly enjoyed all of the corporate stuff that you touched earlier on before the, the podcast started. You mentioned uh, something that you're planning to interview and uh, remind me exactly what he said, but it's something around how uh, organisations the uh, the politics become stifling. They grow to a size where, what was the yeah, frame? Uh, Safi Bacal's book, Loom Shots. You start out being innovative and creative. You've got ideas. And as the organization grows, then becomes more bureaucratic, more politicized. And it's a safer bet, instead of encouraging innovation, to crush it and shoot it yeah. down. So I'm very excited to have him on as a guest soon. I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast, and and that was that was the disappointing side of of that that life. It's the politics that goes into these big organisations. And if I had any advice for myself, it, it would be get out earlier and work for yourself. I've enjoyed nothing as much as my time since I started working for myself. It's uh, it's just been great. Absolutely, I have to say the same thing. I've been working for myself now 19, 20 years. When I came out of university, I had a small business as well. And I learned more in that 14 months than I did in the next 17 years. You just learn so much. If you throw yourself into it and you actually survive, then the other thing I would advise people to do is be vulnerable enough and intellectually humble enough to ask for help. Yeah. It, it's a huge mistake. One of the things that I'm finding with the podcast is the generosity that people have. If you ask nicely, people will help. Uh, it never crossed my mind. I mean, some of the authors that I've got lined up, I put them way on a pedestal. I never thought that I'd be able to get access to them. But actually, if you ask, they help. They ask for help. Okay, final question then. What are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? My next goal, I speak a lot about pricing. And I've spoken at um, a number of larger events, but only a small number. Most of what I do is either uh, with a particular corporate where I'm, I'm, I'm spending a day with them, teaching them about some of the pricing concepts or doing presentations with the sales team, or I'm talking to CEO groups or business groups and things like that. And what I want to do is transition more towards the, the larger event and the, the big main stage keynoting. And it's a matter of working on that and breaking into that. But that's that's my my goal, my challenge. It's, it's my family understands the idea of wanting to stand up on a larger stage with more people looking at you. No one wants you to fail. No one likes it when someone corpses on there. It's like if you do stand-up, no one wants you to mess up. They want to be there for a laugh and they'll encourage you. And it's the same yeah. thing. Tell me this, what is the appeal to, and what do you mean by bigger? There was a big sales conference in the O2, something like that, sales and marketing conference. That would be magic. I'd love that. Absolutely love it. I'd be up for that in a heartbeat. And what's the appeal? The reason I do this is that uh, I want to see companies succeed. Too many companies are hesitant about pricing and end up on very low net margins. And if you think about what we're going through right now, Anybody that has little cash in the bank 
and operates on one or two percent net, they are really at risk. And if that company is at risk, the jobs within that company are at risk as well. And I want to help organizations that do a good job, that provide a genuine value to their customers to be appropriately remunerated for it so that those companies are stronger, they can grow, they can invest in their people, they can invest in development of their products and services. I just want to help them to be better at doing all of that. Very laudable aim. Do you mind if I challenge your thinking? Go ahead, yeah. Tell me something. How much lifetime change do you see when you track the people who've been in the audience? How many people in the audience actually change their behavior consistently as opposed to say, you know, it's a really good idea and then do nothing with it? It's very hard to answer that for a larger audience, you know, because it's very difficult to stay in touch with them. With the smaller businesses that I've worked with, yes, I do know that they implement those changes. My question that follows on from that is what type of reinforcement are you putting in place in order to ensure that they turn the idea into a behavior, the behavior into a habit, and the habit into culture? And that's about follow-up. It's uh, connecting with them and then maintaining a dialogue with them, offering to to do refreshers, to check on their progress, to teach uh, new people coming into the organization or the ones who are already there have learned. And it does help to try and maintain that relationship and to help uh, keep them moving forwards. Because you're absolutely right. You've got to turn things into habits, a habit of thinking, even if nothing else. Otherwise, you make one change and walk away, and five years later, everything has drifted back to whatever normal was. So taking what we've discussed and applying it, there's not an argument there, potentially, for saying, look, I can turn up and I can speak on stage, and you'll see some change. But how badly do you really want this to work? But the sensible organizations within the audience will hopefully either read my book or ring me and say, that was great, come and help us. So uh, you're now making a couple of assumptions that we both know are probably fallacious, which is that you have a sensible audience and that (laughs) they wouldn't think they ought to. Uh, No, I know know they do, but you say you want to help a lot of people. My challenge here as a salesperson and as a sales coach is why not tell people that the way you work is that you work with them over a period of time and it's a minimum engagement of a year Mm -hmm. and there is the kickoff and then there's reinforcement every couple of months to ensure that the new behaviors are being implemented, people are comfortable, and then in time, what you'll help them do is manage their pricing strategy across their entire portfolio so that they can elevate their net margins. Brilliant, yeah. That's another value add. Yeah. That's worth doing, definitely. That's a premium service. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, David, how can people get hold of you? Uh, Well, the easiest thing is to just Google David Abbott Speaker or David Abbott Pricing Speaker and you'll find me. If anybody wants to email me, david at davidabbottspeaker.com. No hyphens or anything, just David Abbott Speaker. And Abbott has two Bs and two Ts. Or find me on LinkedIn. If you go onto LinkedIn and search for David Abbott Pricing Speaker, I've no doubt that I'll come up. Uh, And one of the advantages, anybody that does want to contact me on LinkedIn, I'm actually working on my next book, which is is going to be a thicker version of How to Price Your Platypus. I don't know if it'll 
what the title will be, but it's um, adding more content, more pricing insights into it. And the way I'm doing it is um, I'm writing a topic at a time and then posting that as an article on LinkedIn. So over time, you're going to see a lot of the, uh, the these ideas coming through. Definitely follow David on LinkedIn for that content. Are you doing any videos uh, to go with it? I do do some, and occasionally when I speak, I get uh, somebody along with the camera and I video that. So uh, you can track me down on YouTube as well. Fabulous. Excellent. David Abbott, thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you would be a great guest for the podcast, or there's somebody that you really rate, like me to interview them, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com and I'll attempt to get them on as a guest. In the meantime, happy selling, stay safe, and go out there and have some fun. Bye-bye.